Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris. This is episode 16, The Spread of Farming. Last time on the History of the World podcast, we investigated the emergence of agriculture and the how and why humans were domesticating wild wheats to create domesticated cereals and wild sheep and goats into their more domesticated animal state. All of this took place in the Fertile Crescent, an area of land following the Tigris and Euphrates rivers up as far as the Taurus Mountains and then down the Mediterranean coast through the Levant and on to the Nile Delta. We suggested that the wild mouflon was brought under human control to become the first domesticated sheep, while the Bezoar Ipex was chose to begin a journey towards becoming the first domesticated goat. All of this is likely to have happened between 10,000 BCE and 8000 BCE, as archaeological and DNA evidence points us towards these facts. Other animals that would have been domesticated in the same area of the world would have included the wild boar, which was selected to become the domestic pig. Scientists have traditionally suggested that this happened in around 7000 BCE. They would have been popular for their wealth of meat that they provided to their hungry farming tribal group. However, there has been some study in recent years that has gained some attention in scientific circles. It is believed that there are two separate instances of pig domestication historically, and following the formulation of the genomes of modern animals and their wild relatives, it looks like it's true. The genome is something that is directly linked to DNA study. All animals have their own unique genome, which contains their DNA and it can be recorded, even though in some cases it is extremely detailed and complex. Using this information, it appears that not only did pig domestication take place in the Fertile Crescent, but also at a site called Jiahu in the north of modern China. It may also be the case that Europeans had independently domesticated the pig and that ultimately the Fertile Crescent domesticated pig interbred with the European domesticated pig or a wild variety of European boar and that resulting animal became the one that replaced the one already existing in the Fertile Crescent. This tells us two main things. Firstly, we cannot be allowed to think that domestication is something that happened in one place and spread out. If societies were genuinely struggling after the Younger Dryas, which was a cold snap in temperatures that occurred before the Neolithic Revolution, and if populations were increasing, causing tribes to encroach on each other's hunting and foraging grounds, then agriculture and farming would have been the natural survival choice as clearly humans exited the Paleolithic Age, with a healthy knowledge of how the natural world worked. 
Secondly, we cannot assume that domestication of species was a linear thing, in exactly the same way that we have discovered with human evolution. There would have been try and fails. There would have been separate instances. There would have been a convergence of domesticated species when tribes decided to unite with one another. Likewise, escaped domestic animals would have either interbred with its wild cousins before being recaptured, or simply gone feral. The wild sheep and goats of the mountainous areas of Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean Sea, are believed to be feral. Once domesticated, transported by boat to the island, either due to population expansion or trade, and then they just ran away to the mountains to laugh and pull faces at their human captors. The other animal associated with this time period and area is cattle, or what is more commonly called the cow. The animal is believed to have been domesticated from the now extinct wild oryx. It is also believed that this animal was domesticated in more than one place. It now apparently seems that those humans prepared to domesticate wildlife were more likely to survive than hunter-gatherers. This seems to be the only explanation for the sudden and widespread and multiple instances of cases of domestication. It seems that domestication of wildlife was a survival necessity. It was the next natural step in our evolution. With such a wide array of fauna, that is animals, and flora, that is plants, being domesticated, it made sense that humans could actually become sedentary, that is, fixed to living in one spot. Previously, they would follow migrations of animals and move from place to place to have access to wild resources. However, now humans could settle in one place and start to develop the area in which they lived into a comfortable place to spend their entire life, with resources of food and water nearby, and the earliest evidence of this overall lifestyle change was in many places throughout the Fertile Crescent. Domesticating animals. So, humans appear to have domesticated dogs long before other animals, maybe around 30,000 years ago. Certainly by 8000 BCE, we appear to have domesticated sheep and goats, and then by 7000 BCE, pigs and cattle. We don't see any instances of the domestication of bears and elephants though. This is because not every wild animal is a suitable candidate for domestication. It would be no good trying to domesticate aggressive animals, such as bison or warthogs, for example. The animals more suitable for domestication needed to be somewhat docile in their behaviour. The animals had to have a social structure within its own kind so that you could keep them in groups with each other. The animal would need to be able to mature quickly and reproduce quickly in order to sustain the size of the herd. So it would be no good having domestic elephants 
due to the fact that they take so long to mature and so long to produce a calf. This is without even mentioning the size of the elephant, an animal that would take some effort to enclose and to eat a considerable amount of food. Feeding the animals is also a good reason why it was easy to choose herbivorous animals for domestication. You wouldn't want to try to domesticate a lion as you would have to domesticate other animals purely to feed the lion. Even then, some herbivorous animals are still unsuitable for domestication. The zebra, despite being a manageable size, socially comfortable and easy to feed, was found to be very flighty and volatile. This is not too dissimilar to the gazelle, which would not react well to enclosure as it would likely injure itself by panicking. It is very likely that some humans found out these facts the hard way, by trying and failing. The domestic animals that were suitable began to be selectively bred to enhance the qualities that humans were looking for. The animals with the better temperament were favoured for reproduction. The animals that showed signs of higher quantity and quality of meat on their bodies were also selectively bred. Eventually, the animals that had been bred into an animal quite unlike its wild relative, which began a process of creating breeds of domesticated animals to reflect the differing favoured traits of the different tribes in their differing locations. One of the interesting aspects regarding domesticated animals relates to their sexual body size dimorphism. Sexual body size dimorphism is something we explored in detail way back in episode 2 about the Australopithecines. It is basically the physical size difference of the male and the female of a species. Domesticated animals lost their sexual body size dimorphism due to the fact that the males did not have to fight for their females as in the wild. Therefore, it became something no longer required. It is also the reason why horns of sheep and goats are much smaller in domestic breeds than their wild ancestors. We briefly mentioned in the last podcast that utilising the wool of sheep was something that interested humans, but it was certainly not something that was of initial interest due to the unsuitable coats of wild sheep. It was a secondary product, just like the milk extracted from animals. Humans are believed to have not been able to initially digest milk due to the lactose content. This is something that many humans have developed a tolerance to over time, but certainly not before domestication of animals. The The spread spread of of farming. Certainly through fossil records, we can determine that farming spread from the Fertile Crescent into Europe. In Europe, we see a good amount of success with wheat and barley alongside pigs and cattle. Farming originally penetrated into the Balkans, possibly around 6,500 BCE, and spread westwards over the course of the next 1,000 years, right up to the Iberian Peninsula. Over the course of the next 2,000 years, the spread went northwards through what we know today 
as the Germanic territories and as far as the British Isles and the southern reaches of Scandinavia. As a general rule, the spread of farming in Europe does appear to be associated with most of the fauna and flora whose initial domestication is associated with the Near East and the Fertile Crescent. Throughout this period, there were still successful instances of domestication of other species. It is always generally accepted that the Fertile Crescent is the original area attributed to the domestication of the fig tree and that this happened at around 4500 BCE. However, there have been caches of fig fruits discovered in places such as Gilgal 1 in modern day West Bank that could date back as far as 9500 BCE. The carbonised fig fruits show signs of physical difference from wild figs which could suggest that humans were selectively planting fig branches as these different fruits are known to be produced in the modern world by the same selective process. So this could potentially push back the date of fig domestication into the realms of the first wheat domestication. Other vegetation that has been put forward through scientific research in the Fertile Crescent and believed to have emerged in the early Neolithic are lentils, peas, chickpeas, bitter vetch and flax. Bitter fetch may have provided a good source of feed for domestic animals, while flax would have been useful for its natural oil and its practical fibrous qualities. So the Fertile Crescent was very much the heartland of the origins of domestication, which is why we call it the Cradle of Agriculture. Farming of certain species spread westwards across the whole of Europe throughout the Neolithic. But what about eastwards? If we travel eastwards from the Fertile Crescent, we first encounter the Indus Valley. This is generally along the border of modern Pakistan and India. Many of the species domesticated in the Fertile Crescent appear in the Indus Valley, which strongly suggests that farming spread eastwards from the Fertile Crescent as it did into Europe. However, it does appear that the Indus Valley is the origin of the domesticated zebu cattle, thought to be a descendant of the wild Indian oryx, and this is believed to have happened around 6000 BCE. Either domestication was something that was taking place independently in the Indus Valley, or the techniques of initial domestication had spread east from the Fertile Crescent. The Far East. So the title of this podcast is called The Spread of Farming. And so far we have been able to somewhat justify that farming originated in the Fertile Crescent, westwards into Europe and eastwards into the Indus Valley. However, we do know that domestication of species occurred all around the world during the Neolithic. So was there a messenger travelling around the world spreading information about farming? Let's now look over to the Far East and specifically the areas of modern day China, Southeast Asia 
and the coastal lands around the Bay of Bengal. We can consider this generally as a large area of fertile land detached from the areas that we have already discussed. The question we now have to ask is, did farming spread to the Far East or did it emerge independently? It is obvious to some which domesticated species we should be talking about now. It has to be rice. Rice is historically closely linked to Chinese agriculture and scholars recognise that domestication of this foodstuff has to be thought of as originating in China. The exact date and location is very much a mystery though. There are some instances of rice remains that date back to sites older than 12,000 years ago but far too controversial to state categorically that domesticated rice was being produced. The more convincing sites are convincing because it relates to a subject raised in the previous podcast, the Younger Dryas. If you recall, the Younger Dryas was a large-scale climatic event which dramatically affected the Northern Hemisphere. Temperatures dropped suddenly and radically before stabilising again. The results of this sudden climatic jolt may have changed the conditions of the Northern Hemisphere enough to force agricultural lifestyle to emerge in human populations in the Fertile Crescent. Now we're about to suggest that this could have affected China in a similar way and in complete independence from the Fertile Crescent, as well as the rising temperatures that we know of since entering an interglacial, we also see a sharp increase in rainfall and sea levels after the Younger Dryas. All of these factors are very much favourable to the success of rice, and as such there are a number of sites put forward as possible sites of an age after the Younger Dryas that rice was being cultivated. But scholars believe that it would have been in and around the Yangtze River Valley and that they believe that domestication was a slow process, maybe taking place over a period of 3,000 years. Evidence suggests that rice domestication then spread out healthily from the Yangtze River Valley afterwards. Mitochondrial DNA analysis of domestic pigs in China also reveals some interesting information in relation to domestication emergence in general. Not only do we see that pigs of China appear to have been domesticated independently from the pigs of the Fertile Crescent, but we can also see that pigs may have been domesticated independently in different areas of China itself. This does appear to give us an overall impression that agriculture in general became a response to environmental pressures on humankind and a necessity to the growing populations of humans whose hunter-gathering ranges would have undoubtedly clashed with each other resulting in certain disappointment for those tribes with no store or resource to go back to. Domestic cattle of the Neolithic differed depending on where you were in the world. In Europe and the Fertile Crescent they were all descendants of the wild oryx. As we head west across the Eurasian landmass, we find domestication of gaur, which is a different wild cattle species. 
the nearer to China we get, the more we find domesticated yak and buffalo. While in Southeast Asia, we can see the domestication of the banteng, yet another species of wild cattle. For me, without even exploring the far off and detached lands of the Americas, where domestication also occurred during the Neolithic, this clearly demonstrates that agriculture was a result of environmental pressures and that it occurred independently in different regions of the world. Further evidence over time may prove me to be wrong, but we have clearly demonstrated over the course of the podcast series that humankind had the cognitive skill to understand its environment well enough to understand the ultimate value of patient planning and resourcefulness, not to mention a clear understanding of the natural world and the knowledge of how to change it and utilise it for our benefit. China and the Far East mastered the cultivation of millet as a cereal crop and also the wild jungle fowl was domesticated to become what we know in the modern world as the chicken. Northern Tropical Africa Going back to the Fertile Crescent, we mentioned that it stretched to the Nile Delta. It is believed that the banks of the Nile were habitable for humans and were fertile, thereby conditionally correct for agriculture, should the populations deem it necessary. We can say the same for the North African coasts, which oversee the Mediterranean Sea. This means that all of the coastlines of the Mediterranean were places suitable for agriculture. When we follow the Nile down, we soon venture into an area of the African continent where if you travel any distance from the river itself, you would be in the arid desert lands of the Sahara, which are not suitable for cultivation of plants. However, by continuing southwards along the Nile, you eventually come across the more tropical regions of Africa, just north of the equator. This is an area which stretches from Ethiopia in the east, right the way across the continent to West Africa. Some expert analyses of agriculture in the northern tropical Africa region cannot categorically link the emergence of agriculture to the Fertile Crescent. In other words, we cannot be sure if agriculture emerged independently or whether it migrated southwards from the very north of the continent. There are things to consider here. Firstly, it appears that the northern tropical Africa region demonstrates agricultural advances of yams, rice and millet. None of these crops are associated with the Fertile Crescent in the Neolithic. The important aspect, once again, is climate. In the same way that we spoke about the impact of the aftermath of the Younger Dryas that had on the Far East, there was also a dramatic environmental change in North Africa. It's called the Neolithic subpluvial and it created wet conditions uncharacteristic of the Sahara regions. This encouraged the Sahara to become a more habitable area, not least of all for humans, and it lasted from around 7,500 BCE for about 4,000 years. So with this in mind, it is altogether possible 
that the skills of agriculture spread out from the Fertile Crescent. However, there is strong evidence of environmental pressures causing agriculture to have every chance of independently emerging as the next natural development in our evolution. This particular aspect is supported incredibly by the emergence of agriculture in the Americas. The, the Americas. One of the most interesting discoveries in the Americas relates to the potato. There is archaeological evidence to suggest that humans may have been eating potatoes as long ago as 11,000 BCE among the Andes mountain range of South America. This is interesting because we do not believe that humans had been around for much more than a thousand years or two in that particular area of the world. Also, we recognise the fact that wild potatoes are not actually very edible. The tubers themselves were thought to have been very alkaline, which may have made humans very ill. The domesticated potatoes that we're more familiar with are selectively grown to have large tubers with low amounts of alkali. This means that the early South Americans had to quickly learn how to take control of wild potatoes very quickly after their arrival, thus showing the first signs of agricultural activity. We can't be sure though about this and uh, we can't rule it out. We can see that peoples of the Peruvian highlands were certainly enjoying their potatoes as long ago as 6000 BCE. Another interesting fruit of the Americas is the squash, the most famous of which is the pumpkin. The Cihuatoxla rock shelter in the state of Guerrero in modern day Mexico has been the place of discovery for evidence of early domesticated squash. And it dates back possibly as far as 7000 BCE. Not only squash, but also maize, which is also known in the modern world as corn or sweet corn. If we can take this as proof, then there is absolutely no possible way that agriculture in the modern world is something that started in one place and spread throughout the world. It happened independently in many different locations and likely caused by similar pressures. One of the first animals to be domesticated in the Americas was not a flightless bird or a herbivorous ungulate, but actually a rodent. It's the guinea pig. Docile, social and easy to keep captive. Easy to feed and procreates at a quick rate. It also provides a decent amount of meat to the lucky individual who has the opportunity to eat one. Sorry to all of you that love your guinea pig pets. They were possibly domesticated as long as 5000 BCE in the Andean region of South America. Llamas and alpacas, two very closely related animals, were also domesticated by the indigenous people of the Americas. The domestication has been hard to date due to the seemingly subtle change in the relationship between humans and these camelids. The first humans in the Americas were happy simply just to hunt these animals. But it does seem that the archaeological record suggests a change after 4000 BCE 
when hunters started turning towards a more pastoralised method of farming, which changed the species into more selectively bred domesticated ones. The dental morphology of some of the camelid remains discovered after this date had definitely changed, which is a good sign of domestication. Pastoralism is the practice of herding and selectively breeding of animals which either leads to domestication or the creation of separate breeds. Other interesting domestication. The domestication of camelids in the Americas was not restricted to the Americas. The camels of Eurasia were domesticated, including the dromedaries of the Arabian Peninsula, which are known as the camel with one hump, and the Bactrians of the Eurasian steppes, which are the camels with two humps. The Eurasian steppes are also interesting for the harnessing of one of the very flighty ungulates which we have managed to domesticate, which is the horse. There is firm evidence of archaeological discoveries made in the modern country of Kazakhstan that horses were domesticated from around 3500 BCE onwards. We can establish that horses were used for their meat and their milk and we can also see that humans were also attempting to ride them, even possibly to round up other horses. We can see evidence of this from a bit being used in the horses' mouths. Humans had very much developed a deep interest in the animals which they shared the planet with, not just during the Neolithic, but in the Paleolithic, which takes us back to episode 13 and our episode on prehistoric art and ritual. The shamanic figures of the Upper Paleolithic incorporated physical traits of animals and the cave paintings showed a deep feeling towards the relationship between human hunters and their animal prey. It seems though that during this period our very first domestication of an animal, which was the dog, carried with it a feeling of love that we easily recognise in today's society. This particular podcast will undoubtedly be a popular one, purely on the basis that animals are popular. A visit to the zoo nowadays is a joy to behold purely because we get to fall in love easily with the animals that we share the planet with. We do of course generally hope that the animals are being kept in conditions that give them an enriched lifestyle and I do of course state this with an understanding that not all zoos are perfect and in the minds of some people quite immoral. Now we have talked a lot about dogs so that's a little bit one-sided in relation to the argument between dogs and their closest pet rivals. So I'm now going to take us all to Cyprus briefly to an archaeological site called Silurukambos. It is here that we can see the burial of a human next to their pet cat. Domesticated cats have a far more independent nature than domestic dogs, but they certainly have a commensal behaviour, which means that they like hanging around, and not least of all, hanging around our human ancestors, inquisitively waiting to see if they could take advantage of some food scraps by inadvertently winning the heart of a human tribesman in the same way that the dog did. So the human relationship with cats is also very, very old indeed. Successful domestication techniques 
that have developed for thousands of years and you are hit by it every time you walk into a supermarket. It doubles as a museum for our domestication history. From the watermelons and coffee of Africa to the apples, garlic and carrots of Southwest Asia to the bananas, coconuts and tea of Southeast Asia to the beans, peanuts, tomatoes and indeed the turkeys of the Americas. Humans were adapting the fauna and flora of the world around them to create what would become a sedentary lifestyle. A lifestyle that meant, for the first time, they could begin to settle down in one place and not migrate around the land, foraging for food according to the seasonal time of year. As humans began to settle down and live in one place, a desire emerged to start making that place as comfortable and as effective as possible. Dwellings began to be built and social hierarchies began to emerge among the people of these tribal settlements. We are about to see the emergence of the first known villages, which will be the subject of our next podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast and thank you to the 300 people that listened to last week's podcast in this last week. That's the largest amount of people I've had listened to a new podcast so far, so thank you. Thank you to Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece podcast, who tirelessly promotes my podcast, among many others. It's a great place to go. The History of Ancient Greece, if you go to their Facebook page, you will be able to enjoy his promotion to other podcasts, giving you access to so much information and so much entertainment. Uh, For those of you that look out for the new podcast episodes when they come out, you will notice that my podcast this week has come out slightly later than I normally publish it, just by a few hours. But nonetheless, um, I could not podcast last night. I could not publish because I was out and about. And I went to the King Richard III Visitors Centre in Leicester, in the good old UK where I live, and I was able to watch the first public showing of the Rex Factor podcast animated show. And this was a project that was created by Tim Mouse Animation Studio. It's great to see a podcast developing. It's one of my favourite podcasts. It's called Rex Factor and they do a kind of review system for the kings and queens of England and Scotland, which was their second series. They're now moving into Queen and King Consorts for their third series. So it's a really good uh, two-man show. So a lot of discussion, a lot of entertaining banter. Really, really highly recommend it. And it's great to see that this podcast has ventured into animation. Who knows, it could turn out to be an educational tool in the future. I really do wish all the boys at Rex Factor and Tim Mouse Animation Studio the very, very best for the future and thanks for all your hospitality last night it was a great little event and we all really enjoyed ourselves i'm looking forward to you all interacting with the history of the world podcast discussion forum i keep posting links to this on facebook and on twitter so please come and join in i'm really really interested in what your thoughts and opinions are about the content of the podcasts and I want to open up discussions about the subjects. History is a matter that is very much open to interpretation, which means that we can all offer an opinion 
on the evidence presented before us. Just because I have an opinion doesn't make it right and it doesn't mean that someone else's opinion can't actually stop me in my tracks and make me think, hang on a minute, here's another perspective, here's a groundbreaking perspective. So come along with all your ideas and thoughts and uh, stun the world with your opinions that make everyone stop and think. It's also a good place to come to if you've got a question that you want to throw out there and anything I see, any questions, I'll, I'll give you my answer for what it's worth. I had a lovely review from Gene455 on Apple Podcasts. He gave me five stars. Thank you, Gene. That's a very generous amount of stars. Thank you. He says, very enjoyable, very interesting. I've always wanted a podcast about human evolution and anthropology in general. So when I heard this mentioned on the history of ancient Greece, I was excited. The narrator is great. Oh, I keep telling everyone that, but no one listens to me. And I'm eager to see where he takes the podcast. Well, in our, in our near future, we've got the development of the Fertile Crescent, the development of society and civilization, the villages and towns, and uh, some of the cultural advances of certainly Mesopotamia and Egypt in particular are on the horizon. So that's what's coming up in the near future. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you for your patience in waiting for the podcast to come out. Come and join us on social media, on Facebook and on Twitter, on the discussion forum. I'm looking forward to seeing you and your opinions and thoughts and your interaction. Please come and bring it on. I'm really looking forward to seeing and hearing from you. Until next week, have a great week. The History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter.